Hello, this is your host, Trevor Furness. And before this episode begins, I just want to give you a quick reminder to head on over to patreon.com slash the march of history. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the march of history. Go there and add your own contribution to the march of history in any amount that you can afford. You know, obviously, the more the better. It helps to fund the March of History and helps us to improve the podcast. But even if you can only afford 20 cents a month, everything still counts. So please go there and give a contribution to the March of History so we can produce better episodes and episodes more often. And I understand that not everybody is in a financial position to contribute to a podcast, even if it is their favorite podcast. So if you can't afford to contribute to the March of History, I do understand but I ask that you go to the Apple Review Store, Apple Podcast Store, and leave a review, something nice about the podcast that you like with five stars, and that can be your contribution instead of a financial one. Thank you, and then I'll talk to you in the episode. Welcome to the March of History. I am your host, Trevor Furness, back with episode 43 of the March of History. We left off in last episode with the Conference of Lucca with Pompey, Crassus, and Caesar, the three titans of the late Roman Republic, gathering together and figuring out a way to renew their alliance and to achieve ever greater glories and honors and positions for themselves. And we pick back up today with Pompey and Crassus heading back to Rome to gain the consulship, that top dog position in Rome, so they can force through new legislation to gain them ever higher positions, as I said. But before we even get started on the episode, let me just say that I was recently exploring the Roman Baths of Valencia. It's like a 30-second walk from my apartment, so some Sundays I go and it's free. It's a lot of fun to explore, and I saw that Valencia was originally founded in 138 BCE, and for those who don't know, let me just give a little backstory. Valencia is a city that I'm living in right now in Spain. So Valencia was founded in 138 BCE under the name of Valentia with a T, and the original name meant strength or valor. It was a colony of Roman veterans that had fought in the wars against different Spanish tribes. But then I read the city had been destroyed 63 years after its founding in 75 BCE. And then I was shocked to learn who had actually destroyed this Roman city. It had been none other than Pompey Magnus. Yes, the very same man from the triumvirate, Caesar's what, father-in-law or son-in-law? <laughs> Always get that one mixed up because of their age. But the man from the triumvirate, the great war hero Pompey Magnus in his wars in Spain, destroyed the city of Valencia in 75 BCE. It was later rebuilt 50 years later and refounded in 25 BCE by, or under the reign of Augustus at least. So, I had no idea been living in this city that Pompey had destroyed this city at one point. So for that alone, in this episode, Pompey gets a boo, boo Pompey for destroying <laughs> my current home city. Okay, and with that little fun fact out of the way, let's get back to our narrative and back to episode 43. 
So after the Conference of Lucca, some people in Rome, at least the people who were more astute political observers, realized that something had gone on and something was different. And the rumor begins to spread that Pompey and Crassus are going to run for consul. And when pressed on this and asked in this, by the Senate if they plan to run for consul, Pompey and Crassus don't help their case. They kind of just they don't confirm or deny. They kind of just beat around the bush. So I know at, at one point Pompey says maybe he will, maybe he won't, <laughs> which is like a like a five year old's answer if you're going to ask him a question. You know, you can imagine how infuriating that is if the Senate asks Pompey, you know, will you run for consul? And he goes, maybe I will, maybe I won't. <laughs> And uh, Crassus gives a much more politic answer about, you know, how he'll do it if it's in the best interest of the Republic, but not if it's not in the interest of the Republic, which, again, doesn't really mean anything. It just sounds much better than what Pompey said. So they continue to make confusing statements like this. And so people begin to assume that they're not running for the consulship. And many people would who would normally put their names forward for the consulship would withdraw if they knew that the two most powerful men in the Republic are going to run. It's not worth it. It's a big expense to run for consul, too. And so a number of people come forward and begin to declare their names to the consulship because they assume that Pompey and Crassus are not running. Why else would they not just come out and say it? And at different points, Pompey and Crassus are actually helping these different people who are presumably friends of theirs to canvas for election. But then one day, Pompey and Crassus come out and actually openly declare their candidacy, <laughs> which the different ancient authors say it would just seem absurd to people because they were actively helping people up to that point canvas for their own election. And then they come out and declare their own candidacy. Now, it's possible they were helping these people before the conference of Lucca and then after the conference declare their own candidacy. As always with ancient sources, it's tough to tell timelines. But once they declare that they are running, the rest of the candidates in the Republic all withdraw their names and decide that it's not worth running and it's not worth making an enemy out of Crassus and Pompey. All the candidates, save for one, that is. A man by the name of Lucius Domitius Ahenobarbus. Yes, the same red beard from last episode. We're going to simply call him Ahenobarbus. He continues to run against Crassus and against Pompey. And the whole time that Ahenobarbus is running, Cato is in his ear, just talking up a storm. I mean, in in some ways, I mean, they say Ahenobarbus runs, but then the ancient sources make it clear that it was kind of Cato using Ahenobarbus as a puppet, because at different times, Cato almost forcibly compels Ahenobarbus into the forum, according to Plutarch, and forces him to canvas for this office that Ahenobarbus seems very reluctant to actually want. And Ahenobarbus stands more than just a small chance of winning, because Pompey and Crassus's campaign is it's a bit of a mess from the get-go. The main issue with their campaign is that they waited too long to declare their candidacy for the consulship. They actually, there's a certain legal date at which you can't declare that you're a candidate for consul after that, and they waited until after that legal date had gone by to declare their candidacy, so technically it's illegal for them to run, and the current consul is not going to make an exception for them and refuses to allow them to run for consul. Now, obviously, Pompey and Crassus have not gotten to the places that they are in their lives, by following the rules and by being meek and compliant, 
No, they were going to bend every rule in the book to fit their needs. So they began to delay the election until January of 55 BCE, the next year, when this consul who's blocking them will be out of office. At that point, there's no new consul to take over for the old consul, so the Romans choose what they call an interrex, which is like a temporary officer to preside over elections. And this person they're going to make sure is one of their own and is going to allow them to run for the consulship. Now, they don't want to openly delay this whole election process themselves because that would garner a lot of hate for them. So they get some proxies to do it for them. One of the more notable proxies and interesting people is Clodius. Yes, Clodius is now back to working on the side of Pompey. This man is as fickle as they come, and you gotta wonder how he goes from chasing Pompey through the streets and insulting him and spitting at his supporters to working on his side. I have a few theories. It, it could be because Crassus really was holding Clodius's leash. And once Pompey and Crassus are back to working together, maybe indeed Clodius, you know, was Crassus's dog and said, okay, now I'm on Pompey's side. Or did he have a fear of the newly reformed and re-strengthened triumvirate? Or maybe the most likely of all, was Clodius just a great pragmatist and saw all three of these powerful men lining up together on the same side and decided to be on their side rather than against them? We don't really know. These are the options that I can think of, though. Now, with the election delayed, things begin to heat up. Many people, both senators and equites, get very angry that this election is being stalled out. I mean, it really is a subversion of, of, the, of the republic, of democracy. And as the anger and the resentment in Rome continues to rise, Clodius almost gets killed by a group of equites in the Senate House, according to Dio, and is only narrowly saved by a mob of common people. See, the equites surrounded Clodius. Clodius started yelling for the common people, and the common people came to his rescue and saved him from this mob in the nick of time. But Clodius was almost torn limb from limb right there and then, but manages to survive. Pompey and Crassus hold the course, though, and refuse to buckle under public pressure. After all, this is the deal they made with Caesars. They need to become consul. And the election day finally does arrive, and it starts with a bang. Now, there's a few different accounts of what happens at the actual election, but all of the accounts agree that there is violence on election day. You see, Hannibarbus and his entourage are actually attacked by the supporters of definitely Pompey and possibly a, a combination of both of their supporters. And it gets very violent. Ahenobarbus's torchbearer is killed. That would have been the person holding a torch leading the, the way because, like I said, there's a few different sources. One source says that they were heading to the election area, you know, where the vote would be held early before the sunrise to get there early and shake hands and kiss babies and be present on election day. And that's when a group of Pompey's supporters were waiting in ambush for them and jumped them and attacked them. Now, another source says that it was also pre-dawn, which is why there was a torchbearer there, but that it was a confrontation that both supporters got into while waiting around for the election to start, and that's when the violence happened. But either way, what we do know is that it was Pompey and, and possibly Crassus' supporters that attacked Hannibarbus and his supporters. Hannibarbus himself was wounded. Cato was wounded in his right arm protecting Hannibarbus. 
and all of them are forced to retreat, and Hanna-Barbus runs back to his house. And the election continues after that, and Pompey and Crassus are duly elected consuls. But it does not make them look good to have resorted to violence to win the election. I mean, you think about how much bribery they were already committing and how much coercion they were just naturally doing in this election, and yet they still felt the need to attack the rival candidate on his way to the election. It does not make them look good. And as always, you never know if these are their supporters without orders, acting hot-headedly and doing something that neither Pompey nor Crassus would support, or whether they were ordered to do this, we don't know. Now, it's not just the elections for consul that were delayed, it's also the elections for all the other positions in the Republic. And the next position to be elected is Praetor. And of course, the jockeying for power and the election violence doesn't stop with the election of consul and continues right on down the line. Now, this was a contentious election for Praetor because Cato was running for Praetor, and Pompey and Crassus felt that he was a huge pain as it was, Cato, and they did not want to see him gain a legitimate position to really strengthen his arguments. So just like they did for the consulship, they put together a campaign of bribery and intimidation ahead of the vote, but when the voting day came for the praetorship, Cato actually wins the first tribe despite this bribery and despite this intimidation. So... What Pompey does is immediately says that he hears thunder and shuts the whole vote down. Again, this is much like Cato doing his filibusters or Bibulus saying that he saw bad omens. This is stopping democracy in its progress when it doesn't work in your favor. And Pompey may have even learned this trick from Bibulus, who first tried to do it to Caesar. So it's increasingly becoming where both the optimates I mean, I, I wouldn't call the popular, or I wouldn't call the triumvirate the side of the populares because they're not. You know, Crassus and Pompey kind of re- represent their own sides, but a lot of these tactics, you know, calling of bad omens, seem like they were first used by the Optimates against Caesar. Now they're being used by people who are allied to Caesar against the Optimates. Now, after the election is delayed, Pompey and Crassus give out even bigger bribes and double down on the intimidation and force, even throwing some people out of the forum who are trying to vote that presumably aren't voting on the, <laughs> the right way on the bill or right way on the election that they want. And they hold a second vote. And this time Cato loses and Cato will not be Praetor that year. Now, objectively, this is just wildly unfair behavior towards Cato. And again, it doesn't make Pompey, Crassus, or even Caesar look good because Caesar's not the one actively doing these measures. He gets some distance between him and these actions by being in Gaul, but these are his allies. He did support them for the consulship, and I'm sure some of that money going towards bribes is coming from Caesar as well, and possibly some of the coercion as well. Now, at this point, the consuls have been elected, the praetors have been elected, and now it's time to elect the aediles. And this is where the violence ratchets up even more. We don't know the exact details, but during the election for Aedile, a big fight breaks out, and Plutarch says many people around Pompey were actually slain, which is a word that's used in ancient texts often, and I love it. You know, They don't say, so-and-so killed this person or murdered that person. They say they slayed them. This person was slain. <laughs> I think a word we should bring back more often in today's terms Although I hope nobody around you is being slain. Anyway, as these people were killed or slayed around Pompey, 
he ends up getting covered in their blood. And so as any reasonable person would do, if you're covered in somebody else's blood, you say, ew, get this off me. And he changes clothes to a fresh toga and continues with his day. Now, these bloody clothes are sent home to where his wife, Julia, is living by the servants and the slaves, and they bring these bloody rags into the house. Julia sees them carrying Pompey's bloody clothes all in a tizzy, presumably, because things are not going well if, if Pompey's sending back his clothes covered in blood, and Julia promptly assumes the worst and faints, and she was pregnant at the time and tragically miscarries the baby. So that is a huge blow to, obviously, Caesar's daughter, Julia, but also to Caesar as the grandfather and to Pompey as the father. But if we're talking about the effect this has on the Roman Republic, this is an election for Aedile, which multiple people are killed at. Increasingly, this kind of violence and these killings are becoming normalized at Roman elections, and it's... It's not good, right? Once you introduce violence into this republic, it's like a disease. It spreads and it gets worse and worse and people become more and more accustomed to it. And violence is met with violence. Once you commit violent acts on some group, they want to commit violent acts on you and it just spreads and gets worse and worse. Now, it seems like the rest of the elections for that year went off without a hitch because we really don't read about anything additional happening, no additional violence or fighting but there are a number of other votes that do have a lot of issues uh, this year. So Pompey and Crassus are firmly installed as consuls now, much to many people's displeasure. And their next step is to pass their wish list. And their wish list includes getting themselves provinces, right? Those are the main things that they decided along with Caesar that they all needed. But as always with these guys, they never pass these things themselves because they don't want to look like they're self-dealing, like they're giving out provinces to themselves, which is exactly what they're doing, but they don't want it to appear that way, right? So they have a man named Trebonius, who's Tribune, do it for them. And this man, Trebonius, is actually a future officer and proxy of Julius Caesar. So Trebonius starts proposing that they set aside Syria and the two Spanish provinces for Pompey and for Crassus and choose who gets which one by lots. And of course, Cato doesn't like this. So at this meeting where Trebonius is proposing this in which they would vote on this measure, Cato gets up and speaks for an allotted two hours, which is very generous to give Cato two hours to speak on, on any subject or to give anyone two hours to speak. It's a long time, right? So everybody else is just standing there, sitting there waiting two hours as Cato speaks. But this is Cato we're talking about. So at the end of the two hours, he doesn't say, thank you for allowing me so much time. He continues to talk and talk and talk. Cato is filibustering this bill as he's done to Caesar many times in the past. Trebonius is not having this though. And he has Cato actually pulled down from the rostra, from the stage. And you can imagine Trebonius thinks, well, that's the end of it. You know, gets up on stage, begins to speak, hears a noise, looks to his right and sees Cato down at the base of the rostra, still shouting at the top of his lungs. Cato doesn't stop speaking. Even from the base of the stage, he keeps on shouting as if he's the center of attention, not the person up on stage. So at this point, Trebonius is getting increasingly fed up. He has Cato forced out of the forum, but 
Cato manages at some point to escape his guards, comes right back to the forum, continues shouting, continues speaking. Trebonius has him thrown out a second time. Cato escapes a second time, comes back, and this cycle repeats itself a number of times with Cato getting thrown out, escaping the people sent to bring him out, coming back into the forum, presumably from a different angle, <laughs> and just shouting and yelling again. I mean, presumably saying interesting things and isn't just shouting nonsense, but still, I don't know how much anyone could speak for you know over two hours at this point. But at this point, Trebonius gets very angry, and he had, he orders Cato to be hauled off to prison, much as Caesar once did when he was consul. But Cato, with, I don't know if it's like a pig-headed type determination or a great presence of mind, but he continues to speak even as he's being led to prison, as if nothing's happening. And the crowd is just fascinated by this, and I guess they want to hear what Cato has to say, and maybe he was giving a good speech, two, three, four hours into this, I don't know how long this has been going on, but the crowd begins to follow Cato to prison to hear what he has to say. And Trebonius is left standing on the stage with either no crowd or a very sparse crowd, and he gets very nervous about this because now Cato clearly has the crowd listening to him, and Trebonius can't even speak to them. So he gets nervous and he sets Cato free, and Cato's ploy works because the day is wasted and the vote doesn't happen. So Trebonius, not to be deterred, moves the vote to a different date, and the bribes and the intimidation of the electorate are just ramped up even more, just like in the previous elections for the consulship, for the praetorship, and everything else, and a new vote day comes around. And of course, who shows up at this vote? Cato's there again. <laughs> Can't keep this guy down. And Cato declares that he's heard thunder, which he's taken that move directly out of Pompey's book now. Because remember, this is what Pompey did to Cato when he was running for Praetor. And the people running the meeting are not having this. And Cato is promptly tossed out of the forum for even, even daring to say that he heard thunder. And at that point, violence breaks out of this vote. And several citizens are injured and several others are killed during just trying to pass this bill to give these provinces to Pompey and to Crassus. But after this violence settles and the vote is allowed to happen, the bill is passed and Pompey and Crassus will both receive their provinces as planned. Violence again is becoming normalized in Rome, especially around controversial votes. It is becoming increasingly not only possible to use violence, but it seems to be the best way. Violence is winning the day again and again on these votes, which is not a good lesson to be introduced to any democracy or republic. Now, the next item up on Crassus and Pompey's consulship that they want to vote on is to confirm Caesar in his proconsulship and to extend it another five years as agreed upon. And for this, surprisingly, Cato decides to change his tactics. Rather than filibustering and saying that he heard thunder, Cato tries to go directly to Pompey to appeal to his self-interest. Plutarch says, quote, Upon this occasion, Cato did not apply himself to the people, but appealed to Pompey himself, and told him, meaning Pompey, he did not consider now that he was setting Caesar upon his own shoulders, who would shortly grow too weighty for him, and at length, not able to lay down the burden, nor yet bear it any longer, 
He, meaning Pompey, would precipitate both it and himself with it upon the commonwealth. And then he would remember Cato's advice, which was no less advantageous to him than just and honest in itself. End quote. And essentially what Cato's saying there is that Pompey is raising Caesar up on his shoulders and making him into this giant. And Pompey is very strong and can bear that weight now. But Caesar's growing stronger every day. And eventually it's going to come a time when even Pompey's great shoulders can't keep his weight up anymore. And then Pompey will be too weak to throw off the weight and yet not strong enough to hold the weight. And everything's going to come crashing down and it'll crash down directly on the city with Pompey and Caesar. It's kind of a metaphor for them going to war and the Republic being the one that has to face the price. And Plutarch says that Cato often warned Pompey of this. And Pompey, of course, paid no heed to these warnings at all. The bill to extend Caesar's command was duly passed. And as a bonus to Caesar, something that maybe was agreed at the Conference of Luca or maybe was added on afterwards, is that Pompey lends two of his legions to Caesar. You get the feeling that Caesar is fighting these wars in Gaul and needed more troops. Pompey had no intention of going to Spain. Caesar saw his legions and said, hey, you, know, you got a lot of legions there. Do you need those two? Can I borrow some? And Pompey said, no problem. You know, you are my father-in-law after all. And so sent two legions to Caesar and bang, just like that, Caesar now has a total of 10 legions with him in Gaul. And speaking of Caesar and speaking of Gaul, we have been far too long away from our protagonist of this podcast, and he has been busy in Gaul, I mean, in the Conference of Lucca as well. But next episode, we're going to get back into the Gallic Wars, but I still have a few th more things I want to talk about in this episode that are not so much part of the narrative, but do relate to Caesar. And it's about his subordinates, the people that he had working with him in Gaul and in Rome. And I had a whole outline that detailed all these personalities and all these people. And then I thought, in, in hindsight or on second thought, that maybe the audience wouldn't find that so interesting. Because a lot of these people aren't that important, except for the fact that they came into contact and worked with Caesar. So I'm just going to kind of briefly cover the key people in Caesar's administration, the key people that he uses, and then we will move on from there. There are a number of men that comprised Caesar's military staff, and it wasn't a constant list in that there were people who would be there for a few years and then would go back to Rome. Others would be there for the entire time. Others don't come until later in the Gallic Wars. Some don't come until the Civil Wars. So it's, it's not as if these guys were all working together at all times along with Caesar's. You know, there's a lot of variability there. But the key people... The first is a man named Titus Labienus, who we've talked about in the past. He was Caesar's right-hand man and, and a possible military genius in his own right. And he was a brutal and ruthless man. And as far as I know, the only sub-commander or lieutenant of Caesar's that decides to not side with him when the Civil War comes. Then we have Publius Crassus, of course, the son of Marcus Crassus, the richest man in Rome and Caesar's political ally. Young Crassus is a keen student of literature and philosophy, which means that he gets along with Cicero very well, and he turns out to be a bold and gifted commander in Gaul. 
Then later in the Gallic Wars, we have Quintus Tullius Cicero, the brother of the great Cicero, ends up serving with Caesar as well, and he's definitely a political appointment, more so than somebody with great military skill. Of course, we have Mark Antony, who doesn't come until the final parts of the Gallic Wars, and we're going to get into Mark Antony lots before the end of this podcast, so I'm not going to cover him too much here, but he is a fascinating personality. Now, those are the key people on Caesar's staff. There are others, and they're just not that important to the story. But Adrian Goldsworthy does make the point that there is a marked literary feel to Caesar's staff in Gaul, meaning that they had big literary brains, <laughs> is, is one way to put it. Like Caesar. Caesar loved to write. He loved to read. He loved the classics. And he was a fabulous writer. And many people on his staff were as well. I mean, just briefly, we have young Crassus that, like I said, is a keen student of literature and philosophy. We have a man named Aulus Hirtius who would eventually write the eighth book of Caesar's commentaries and, and possibly additional commentaries for Caesar. And then we have Lucius Aurunculius Cotta, a man who wrote a treatise on the Roman constitution. So these guys, in addition to being warriors and fighting in Gaul, are great literary minds, which you can imagine Caesar just eating up being around these people all day long, writing different things and sharing them with each other and comparing and competing. Another thing we can say about Caesar's staff in Gaul is that, for the most part, they're obscure. I mean, there's exceptions. There's young Crassus. There's Decimus Junius Brutus. These are, you know, at least notable names. But for the most part, the great aristocrats of the age were not interested in serving with Julius Caesar. They didn't even like him as a person. These were all the families that had done well under Sola and had survived under Sola. And Caesar represented everything that stood against Sola. And so they had no interest serving with Caesar. And it was seen as a gamble to go to Gaul with Caesar. So only people that didn't have a lot in the world and wanted to rise would be interested in taking that gamble with him. And Caesar, for his part, seems to have welcomed almost anyone into his staff, glad to do favors for them and to put them under obligation to him. And one last very notable thing I find about Caesar's staff in Gaul is that a number of his officers will later participate in his assassination. I'm talking about Gaius Trebonius, Decimus Junius Brutus, and a man named Servius Sulpicius Galba, all three of which will be participants in the assassination of Julius Caesar. So Caesar gave these people a lot, they served together in war, and in the end, it all meant nothing. And they teamed up, along with many, many other senators, to assassinate Caesar. But it's just ironic to hear Caesar talk about these different men in the commentaries, and them serving together, and just knowing that eventually these men will team up to assassinate him. Now, those are the main people that served with Caesar in a military capacity. He also had people in Rome that did a lot of his bidding, the behind-the-scenes things, the banking for him, the bribing, the coercion, and mainly it's two men. It's a man named Lucius Cornelius Balbus, also known as Balbus Major because there is a Balbus Minor as well who also works with Caesar at different points, and a man named Gaius Opius. So Balbus Major, or just Balbus and Gaius Opius. Now, Balbus was a friend of Pompey and of Caesar, 
And so he was key in helping to create the first triumvirate because he was able to introduce the two to each other, get them to talk, get them to sit down, and he was that mutual friend that brought them together. The man probably doesn't get enough credit by history. He would also later advise Augustus. Balbus was extremely wealthy. He was from Spain. He was given his citizenship by Pompey, and he was actually a financier and businessman in Rome too. But Caesar trusted him immensely, and he ran a lot of things in Rome while Caesar was gone fighting wars, which he would be from the time he left Gaul for many, many years, and then the Civil War after that. And then there's Gaius Opius, who worked right alongside Balbus. Gaius Opius, or just Opius, you'll see him called in, in the ancient sources many times, was an intimate friend of Caesar. He was an equestrian, and like I said, him and Balbus just ran things while Caesar was gone. These guys are the kind of men behind the curtain that get so many things done for Caesar and receive so little credit, so I just want to give them a shout-out and let you know that they exist. And that is the end of episode 43 of the March of History. We will pick back up in episode 44 with Caesar in Gaul as the Gallic Wars continue. But don't go yet, because instead of reading the social media handles as I typically do at the end of this episode, instead today I'm going to pick out two of our five-star reviews we've received on the Apple Podcast Store and read them to you. And I think I'm going to do this each episode now. We're going to take two five-star reviews each episode and read them and thank the person that gave them as a way to give a shout out to our fans that take the time to write a review and to give them a little thank you. First up, we have Senator Chris. I like the name Senator Chris. And Senator Chris said, I really enjoyed learning a lot about Julius Caesar. Listen to all 10 episodes, become an expert on Julius Caesar. Well, thank you for the positive review, Senator Chris. I assume, yes, this, this review was from a year ago. So that was back when we only had 10 episodes. So you can learn even more about Julius Caesar now that this is episode, what, 44, I think we're on? 43, and then 44 on next episode. So thank you for the review. We appreciate it and appreciate the support, and we hope that you keep on listening. The next review we have is from Moody, M-O-O-D-Y, and they said, better than history class. And they go on to say, uh, what I never learned in history class growing up. You can hear the passion and energy coming from Trevor, and it's one of a kind. Can't wait for more. Moody, thank you very much. You have me blushing for the, the positive review, and I uh, appreciate the support and appreciate the five-star review, and we hope that you keep on listening. Now, for everyone else who's made reviews and, and did not get yours read today, don't worry. This is going to be a new thing at the end of each episode. I'm going to read two five-star reviews. We have to go in chronological order, so the oldest one's first. And then eventually we will get to the most recent ones. And that is it for today. I have to get packing for my soon, very soon trip to Rome and to Naples, where I will be seeing and filming for you tons of the cool history of ancient Rome and of Naples and Pompeii and Capri and all the amazing sites around there. So I have to get packing for that. Actually, by the time you hear this episode, I'll probably be in Rome or in Naples recording some of that stuff for you. So very exciting. Thank you all for listening, and I will talk to you next time on the next episode of the March of History. Yeah.